0: Justice Human rights are women's rights. Save
1: the world. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Nigerians go to the polls this week in a hotly contested election pitting the incumbent, Goodluck Jonathan, against his longtime rival, Mohamedou Buhari. These elections are a very big deal. Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa and one of the world's largest democracies. Parts of the country are currently beset by the Boko Haram insurgency, and after years of growth, Nigeria is experiencing a degree of economic stagnation. On the line with me to discuss the elections, what they mean for Nigerians and the world, is the Nigerian-American journalist Dio Olapade, author of the excellent book, The Bright Continent, Breaking Rules and Making Change in Modern Africa. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I post short episodes like this on a topical issue every Thursday. And every Monday, I post longer interviews in which global affairs thought leaders and luminaries discuss their lives and careers. And for a tease, next Monday, I'm posting an interview with the youngest African ever to be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Subscribe for free on globaldispatchespodcast.com and wait for Monday to listen to that episode. And here it is, my conversation with the journalist Dayo Olapade. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: A sort of gentleman's agreement for the last couple rounds of elections in Nigeria to pass power um, from the largely Muslim North to the mostly Christian South in a more or less agreed-upon, if not very sporting, manner. And this election pits the president, um, Good Luck Jonathan, who is from the South, who was the vice president of a a president who died in office, against a northerner um, who had been uh, the head of state for a brief period of time in the 1980s. And this directly kind of threatens uh, or brings to a head this gentleman's agreement to share power between the North and South in a way that um, many people are fearful will lead to some kind of uh, either legitimacy crisis or or outright violence. And the backdrop for all of this is, of course, the now global significance of Boko Haram, Um, you know, uh, a terrorist organization that has been, has come to sort of international prominence as a result of largely this kidnapping of uh, 200-some young girls but also just a series of attacks that have been ongoing for six years and now seem to be sort of undergirding um, the the high stakes for this particular election. So there's a lot going on.
1: Um, So I guess to what extent... Do you sort of attribute the rise of Boko Haram to the inability of Nigeria to find that right balance, that power-sharing balance between the North and South, Boko Haram being sort of based in the North, drawing its support from perhaps disillusioned Northern citizens, if that's fair to say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is fascinating and a great question. And without putting on a tinfoil hat, I do think there is a correlation in terms of representation and terrorism in Nigeria. I would point to um, the terrorist groups of the Niger Delta, which were a significant threat um, to oil security, to regional security uh, throughout the tenure, uh, throughout the earliest part of uh, the aughts, and MEND, uh, since Good Luck Jonathan, who in fact comes from Bielsa State, the place where uh, most of the insurgency had had occurred at the time, uh, since his election, there has been, you know, a, a sort of piecemeal truce. Um, And there has not been a great deal of conflict in the Niger Delta uh, during Jonathan's tenure. Uh, At the same time, you have seen in the last six years, you know, quite a lot of activity in the emergence of Boko Haram from a kind of um, fringe disenfranchised group to uh, a terrorist organization that is transnationally linked through the Sahel into other terror groups across Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East, so I think there is some idea that the lack of representation in an explicit way, in terms of what uh, the head from where the head of state um, is from, uh, has plays into this. But I also think generally the idea behind Boko Haram um, is a kind of reaction to the failed state of Nigeria, that the, the state one, does not have a monopoly on force. That's very clear from the activities of Boko Haram and the lack, of the, the, the lack of ability for the Nigerian state to sort of confront Boko Haram showcases that failing. But also its origin story is one of feeling disenfranchised. Uh, the North has historically been underinvested in, um, both in terms of health and in terms of education and in terms of oil revenues, which are largely in the South. So the disenfranchisement, which many Nigerians feel, uh particularly in the north has been sort of um, has been transformed into this sort of very uh, this cancerous terrorist force but it's a it's a sense of disenfranchisement that is real um and may have to do more with good luck jonathan um than with uh than with anything else so
1: i, I wanted i'm sort of curious to learn like to what extent Is the Boko Haram insurgency like the dominant animating voting issue among Nigeria's growing and and prosperous middle class?
0: I think security is a major issue. I think it's one that is not necessarily because of a direct threat, but rather the sort of um, tertiary like the things that that having and that not confronting Boko Haram says about Nigeria, right? Because I think for now, you know, Lagos, where I was for about a month, you know, just in in January, uh, is not quite in any meaningful sense under threat from Boko Haram. There haven't been any attacks. It's not uh, likely that there will be malls that are blown up or you won't see um, the kind of, you know, outrageous day-to-day insecurity and terrorism that folks living in uh, the three states under emergency are, are feeling. Nor is it the diplomatic and political capital like Abuja, where you have seen um, significant attacks on the U.N. compound there, uh, I think, two years ago, and smaller attacks on the outskirts of Abuja more recently. So there isn't a direct threat to the sort of nouveau elite of Nigeria, and even the sort of general middle class in the population center of Lagos. Um, And so it's an issue insofar as it, it proves this frustrating point about the state failure and the inability of the state to provide public goods such as security. So it's more in, out of indignation than direct fear that security is an issue in this election. I think the other sort of top three other than those are really um, things like the price of commodities, right? I mean, people are, there was quite a lot of protesting in Nigeria uh, in this movement that was dubbed Occupy Nigeria in 2012, 2013, around fuel prices. Um, in the last six months, you know, the Nigerian Naira has been devalued. Um, The oil shock you're seeing globally is really affecting these resource-heavy states like Nigeria, um, where the cost of everything is going up. And that is a real issue, uh, the pocketbook issue for the majority of voters, whether or not they're in the middle class or or otherwise. Um, And the last issue would really just be, you know, what is the sort of Workforce of Nigeria's future. I think that's uh, closely related to this economic argument around around oil prices and cost of living. But really, like, what what do we do with this demographic dividend? Who has a good plan for this? How will students who go to school, you know, come out of that experience equipped for the global economy?
1: Are those are either, the top issues, I'd imagine. So on on those issues, I mean, are either candidates distinguishing themselves in any sort of you know meaningful way mm. on, on those questions? I mean, what is say General Bahari you know saying about like the commodity prices, as you said?
0: Right. I mean, the thing that's frustrating, and I guess I would say it's as frustrating in American politics, having covered those. As well, um, is that these issues do not get a fair hearing, right? I mean, there have been kind of perfunctory debates and uh, finger pointing uh, through the, the 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 print media and radio in Nigeria, um, accusing such and such a person of so and such, and pointing to X record. And Jonathan, by virtue of being the incumbent, has been able to kind of issue a couple of last ditch, you know, economic empowerment type youth entrepreneurship funds that are designed perhaps more for, to provide a fig leaf of coverage for his, his record on, on economic issues, which is, is quite poor. But I think when it comes to securities where you really do see this meaningful issues-based um, difference between the candidates, Buhari's central claim to fame is, you know, one, he's got this war against the discipline and corruption, I'd add is another issue that is sort of perennial in Nigerian politics, and the promises to fight it, the the to get tough on it. Buhari really does have a record of doing so, having been um, uh, the head of state in the 1980s um, at a time when he jailed a lot of folks. I mean, it wasn't um, the most progressive of regimes, but it is something he has a reputation for. In addition to that, he is a general who was the governor of uh, what was then Northeast State, which covers Anambra. Um, Aborno, Yobe, these states in the northeast that are being uh, under emergency because of Boko Haram. And so has the credibility on the security issue with someone who's from the military, who's got a reputation for cracking heads, who is a Muslim, who has worked with Niger, Chad, these sort of border states in the northeast on security issues in the past, does provide a kind of credible um, counterweight to Good Luck Jonathan, who uh, has had six years in office um, as the head of state, to attack and confront this this issue of terrorism and has done no such thing. So I think there you really do see a stark difference. And that's one of the major sort of sticking points when you hear about, you know, Buhari's case for himself, is that he will be tough on security issues.
1: And I guess one of the the big issues, you know, overall, I mean, the reason that the, the um, election was delayed in the first place is the question of security. Like, how free and fair will these elections be? Like, how will people in states under emergency will be able to go to the polls uh, and be able to cast their ballots.
0: Yeah, it's been, it's a terrible, it's a terrible paradox, right? You have um, a couple of scenarios. One, and I worried about this before they postponed the election, because, you know, you have three states, uh, Borno, Yobe, Adanambra, who have been, Anambra, who have been under emergency since January 2013, which is now two years. Um, During those two years, the situation has, if anything, deteriorated. There hasn't been Um, any meaningful security gains, or the kind of protections that would be required to do something as uh, complicated and high profile as a a national election. Um, And so the worry is that you you have an election where people stay away from the polls. And so you have depressed turnout in areas that, by the way, are more likely to support the northerner, General Buhari. And so as a result, you have an illegitimate outcome or you have an election where there is turnout and you have uh, Boko Haram attacks that then kill thousands of people. So it is really a damned if you do, damned if you don't proposition. I think when it comes to the postponement of the February 14th vote to March 28th and the, the postponement of gubern- gubernatorial elections until April 11th, um, it happened before. You know, I covered the 2011 vote in Nigeria and they postponed it by a week in good faith, knowing that they wanted to execute the vote in a free and fair way. And I believe it did happen that way. And I was incredibly impressed um, with the election in two thousand and eleven, for its freeness and its fairness, here, I think the delay of game may not have been may have been more cynical. Um, it's not clear that, you know, six weeks was enough time to solve a problem that hadn't been solved in six years by the incumbent government. They claimed to try. And yet you saw, I think you probably read, and if, if we can maybe link to it, a story in the New York Times about um, a town in Damasca called Damasca in northern Nigeria, where you had Chad and Cameroon successfully uh, beating back Boko Haram, but no Nigerian forces present. So the commitment to this delay of game in order to, to create a secure voting environment um, is questionable, I think, at best. Um, and I don't know, because I'm not on the ground in Nigeria, what the sort of prevailing mood is or how the delay has changed, um, you know, the likelihood of victory for either of the candidates. But it does seem that it's not likely to solve the problem of Boko Haram in any meaningful way. So you could really have a situation where you have quite a low turnout in states that support Buhari, which might be you know a problem for the future.
1: So I won't ask you to like predict the outcome of this election, but it seems mm-hmm. that one outcome that is like at least not implausible is that um you know it's a very close election. Irregularities are suspected and reported and one side to, refuses to concede the election and stirs up, you know, um, resentment uh, among their supporters and election violence breaks out. And this doesn't seem to be terribly, like, you know, implausible. I saw, you know, this this um, YouTube message from Barack Obama this week um, encouraging, uh, you know, voters not to resort to violence. But, I mean, how likely do you think this election-related violence is? Uh, and is there anything that can be done to, like, you know, put put a, a stop to it.
0: I mean, you can't see this, but I'm rolling my eyes a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, I think that um, post-election violence is this kind of bogeyman. It happens from time to time all over the world. It happens in Africa with some frequency, but, you know, not nearly at the, with the like likelihood that you might expect. Um, you know this, but your listeners may not. I lived in Kenya for a couple of years where there was a lot of quanking and fear about post-election violence in 2013, given the sort of rather shocking outcome of the 2008 election, where there were 1,200 or so people killed in Kenya as a result of a disputed election. Um, I do not know um, the likelihood of this in Nigeria. I think even in 2011, where Buhari is a candidate, I should point out that Buhari has run for president now four times in Nigeria. Um you know, resulted in a, like, a little outcropping of frustration from Buhari supporters when they learned that good luck Jonathan had won this free and fair vote. Um, but I think, whatever the likelihood of uh, electoral violence, it is almost certainly going to be correlated with expectations management. Um, if Jonathan supporters sense or expect that their candidate is unlikely to prevail, then the fact that he does not prevail may not be provocative. If, similarly, Buhari supporters are convinced that he has got the votes and the sort of temperature of the country is moving in the direction of change, and lo and behold, good luck Jonathan, you know, pulls out a slim victory, um, there might be a higher potential for outrage. Um, It sort of depends, right? Uh, Which is not a very comforting thing to do, and certainly anyone who's pretending they have better intelligence than you or I is kind of misleading themselves, but I do think you know the ultimate responsibility is on these leaders. Um, you'll note that in two thousand thirteen, you know, when Ryla Odinga, uh, the Kenyan prime minister at the time, who was a candidate for president, lost the election, um, you know, there was a, a brief series of appearances in court and then a sort of quick um, concession of the of the you know quite coveted um, quite coveted presidency on his part. So. If there, is, if there is to be no violence, it really will be a result of the ability of these leaders to um, manage expectations and make sure their supporters are not um, you know, unfairly uh, believing one thing when, when it's the other. One I, –
1: I, there's a bit of a tangent. We, could, we can end here if you'd like. But one, I, I think, distinction I see between the Kenya situation and what's happening in Nigeria is that in like months and months and months before the Kenyan election, the international community and, and Kenyans themselves, as, as you saw, like seem to put a lot of effort into tamping down the um, sort of sectarian strife and, and the political and, – and, and the intended political strife that would – um become of like a disputed election. There seemed to be like a lot of very determined and focused effort to play down those differences in ways that I don't think is happening similarly in Nigeria now.
0: Um, yeah, and I think actually the Kenyan situation was quite I thought it was very dangerous. I thought that the there was a kind of quote unquote peace lobotomy that occurred in sure. N- in in Kenya um, where everyone was like, you know, we are one, we are united, we are peaceful. Um, but, you know, elections are contentious. Um, the stakes are high. I'm, you know, in, in my book and in other places, I've sort of shrugged a little bit about the role of representative government in making sure that Africa progresses. Um, but it is without a doubt, you know, a high stakes endeavor and it does matter. Um, and so to the extent that the Kenyan press kind of neutered themselves and were un, were unwilling to sort of make um air things in real time or or provide, um, you know, more nuanced context for the, I think, quite fascinating, you know, end game for that election. I think they did democracy a disservice. Um, in Nigeria, you know, the press is free. The press is extremely boisterous. It's a democracy that is so young. Um, I, I don't, I mean, when I think about the election, like, I'm not that concerned about violence. It didn't really occur to me. This is the first conversation I've had about election violence. Mostly, I'm just kind of frustrated because I do think, that there really is a kind of a sense that change ought to happen. I mean, you realize that if Jonathan wins this election, it will it will uh, conclude with 10 consecutive years of him in power, um, starting from when he was uh, the vice president uh, that ascended to the presidency. And I'm not sure that Nigeria's sort of performance on any metric in over these last six years, let alone 10, would really justify uh, returning him to power. And so there is a kind of uh, a sense that more sophistication in the voting public which I did see in 2011, where voters split the ticket between one party for president, another party for governor, another party for parliament. That was really um, an encouraging sign within the Nigerian electorate. And so when I think of this election, I think of um, you know, an enormous number of people asserting their, their ability to decide between candidates that are distinct from one another and that have different platforms. Um, and I think that, that's sort of the, the outcome I would hope for. Um, beyond the the specifics of who's in charge.
1: Well, that was super clarifying. Thank you very much to the excellent Dayo Olapade. Uh, And you should definitely check out her book. I had the opportunity to travel through Turkey with Dayo several years ago when she was starting to think about the idea for her book, The Bright Continent. It was published last year and now it's out in soft cover. So go get it. And subscribe to Global Dispatches Podcast. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. You can get the app. Subscribe on iTunes. It's all free. And we'll see you next time. Bye.